0: Well, today we are going to be looking at Luke 7, 11 through 17. But before we get there, let me ask you a question. Have you had the thought recently, what is power? Um, I think we can kind of see what the world's perspective, what is power, by just looking at some recent headlines. Um, If you look, at least in the conflict in uh, Ukraine... There has been a lot of hubbub around Western countries agreeing to send modern tanks to the Ukrainians to defend their homeland. And now Russia, uh, who has invaded uh, Ukraine, has responded uh, different ways. They have uh, bolstered uh, their actions in a particular area on the front. Uh, they are, you know, constantly kind of flexing their muscles. One way they're flexing their muscles is that they're taking a particular ship, a frigate, that has su- what's called supersonic missiles. And th- these are the missiles that cannot be shot down by modern air defense. And they're doing this to say, hey, you're trying to escalate this way. You're trying to help Ukraine this way. We are going to be stronger. We're going to flex more, Okay. So the idea is that power is shown through the ability to intimidate. Another way power is seen is uh, actually in our text last week. If you remember, there was a centurion. He is a leader of soldiers, and in his humble request to ask Jesus for help, he identified with Jesus saying, hey, listen, I'm a man of power. I know what it's like. I can tell this guy, go do this, this soldier, do this, and they do it, okay? That's one way power is shown. Today in our text, we're going to see Jesus to show power in a far greater and more fundamental way. Jesus, the Messiah, displays his power over death through compassion. You know, it's one way to intimidate somebody into doing something because you're threatening their life. It's a far greater power to say, I can bring you back to life. Let's go in the word and prayer, to the Lord in prayer. God, I just ask that you would be with us as we look at Luke 7, God. Uh, I just ask that this would be a time for encouragement, a time of conviction, a time of us dwelling on you and seeing you, and that there would be tremendous life change in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces. God, that we, we may have the compassion that Jesus has for us. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at this passage uh, in three ways. So the main point is Jesus, the Messiah, displays his power over death through compassion. And we're going to see that first, through his compassion. Second, through his words. And third, this leads to a praise filled with awe for God's glory. So through his compassion, through his words, leading to a praise filled with with all for God's glory. So first, through his compassion. This is found in verse 13, I'm sorry, 11 through 13. And, but let's just kind of set the context real quick. Uh, if you remember from the past few weeks, uh, Jesus has given a tremendous sermon, the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, he's preached that. He's also healed people before and after that. He's cleansed leopards. He's casting out demons, I believe. Uh, he's cle- uh, healed people without even being there and the crowds are starting to notice Jesus and the text indicates that these crowds are growing often when things are growing really well i think our hearts can draw away to ourselves you know israel in the old testament had this problem Things seem to be going really well, and a generation or a half a generation later, they're turning uh, away from God and wanting their stuff and not God. Sadly, I think many ministries and local churches have been devastated uh, when they have taken their eyes off of God. When they have said, you know, look at all this ministry we're doing. Look at all this fruit we're producing. And then we get caught up in the minutia of doing, uh, helping people that we forget about God. Uh, We can see this, I think, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 3 through 4, when Jesus is talking to John about the church of Ephesus. And we read in uh, Revelation 2, starting in uh, uh, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name'sake, and you have got and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, when we lose our heart for God, our love for others inevitably grow cold. When we see our accomplishments, see our success, see maybe even some capital or lowercase f fame, our, that, that focus on that will inevitably lead us to a colder care towards others. You see, fame, success, all of those things left undirected back to God will always leave a Christian in shame. Let's just put, let's just put ourselves in Jesus' sandals for here for a second. He just preached a killer sermon, okay, the Sermon on the plane. He has miracles after miracles, success after success. He has coalesced a, a group of followers, and he's uh, training them and uh, helping them and growing them. And they're growing closer together. They're they're gelling, and he even and he even uh, was at a town. And some guy who was super powerful came to him and was like, hey, I need you. So now the powerful are coming to him. Not just the lowly, but the powerful are coming to him. And he healed the centurion's servant via Bluetooth. Like, he wasn't even there. Like, Jesus is so powerful, he doesn't have to be in the room for his power to manifest, okay? So things are going really, really well. And now, in our text, Jesus comes to a little town with this huge crowd around him and his disciples around him. And I just was, as I was reflecting on this, as I was studying this passage this past week, how easy would it be for my heart to allow pride to build up at this point? How easy would it, would it be for us to let self-importance grow and fester? Look, yeah, God's working me, but look at all this stuff. I wonder if there are some here this morning. You are here for this express purpose because God, for years, maybe even decades, has been working to scrape out the pride in your heart. And if that is the case, pay close attention to the heart posture of Jesus in this passage. So... With the crowds and the disciples around here, here comes another crowd out of this little town. And this crowd was not there for Jesus. It was there because of tragedy. Look down at verse 12 of Luke 7. And as he, Jesus, drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable, considerable crowd from the town was with her. So here we have this crowd. Pro- crowd most likely this crowd is probably the, almost the whole town. Uh, you know, Because this is a small town. If any of us grew up in a small town, we kind of understand there's no secrets in a small town. Well, there's no tragedies that are by themselves in a small town. So like, everybody was just probably about there. And they were lamenting over the devastating loss of the widow's son. Um, you know, I'm not super old, but I've been to a few funerals. And I'm sure uh, you all have been to funerals too. And there's probably some funerals that stick out more than others. Uh, one, probably the one that I think about the most was the funeral for my scout leader, uh, my scout leader died at about the age of 35 in a, in a car accident one, late one night. And I remember going to this funeral. It was like, you know, the place was packed. There were so many people there. And we were there for the, the viewing. And I remember vividly Mr. George, my scout leader's dad, on his hands and knees before the coffin with his hands banging his chest my son, my son, my son. And that's all he could say. Tears streaming down his face. You know, it's just the reality of it is so devastating beyond words for a parent to bury their child. Here we have a widow burying his, her only son, her only son. And he's, she's weeping, and the crowd around her is weeping. But here, she's a widow. She doesn't even have a husband to share the load or to find comfort from. So let's just think about the widow for a second. We don't even know the widow by name. We know her by her story. She is walking her dead son out of the, uh, the gates of the town were probably just a handful of years earlier she walked her husband dead out of town. This woman knows pain. She knows loss. She knows grief. She knows uncertainty. As listen, this is kind of like a Ruth and Naomi situation. A uh, uh, husband, son. They're they're gone and dead. So she's not only lost her family, she's probably drastically lost her means for income. And this is what Jesus walks up to. This is what is happening when the two crowds are merging. And Jesus, in his pure, divine love, Did not look at the crowd and say, now here is an opportunity to build my following. Or, oh, good night. More people. I've been with people all day. I've been walking all day. I've been talking all day. Now I have to deal with more people? That was not Jesus' response. You see, a prideful response would have been, how can I use this to build myself up? Or a prideful response might be, man, it's all about me, and I just want to rest. I want to chill. I want to watch Netflix. I want to look at my phone. I don't want to be with anybody. This is not Jesus' response. Look what happens next in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. Jesus saw the widow, and he understood her loss, her misery. And his heart response is not, how can I use this situation? Not how I can make myself look better. Not how I can rejuvenate myself after a long day of work. His heart response was compassion for her. A.W. Tozer, a Christian writer and pastor, once famously wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When we think about God, does a deep, compassionate, sympathetic God come to our mind? See, throughout the Old Testament and the New God describes Himself to us as a compassionate God. In verse, I'm sorry, in uh, Psalm 103, verse 13, we read, "As the Father shows compassion to His children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him." In Isaiah 55, 6 through 11, it's a larger chunk, but I think there's a a really big, nice, juicy, spiritual nugget for us to chew on here, so we're going to read it all and talk about it. In Isaiah 55, the Lord is speaking. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And so, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways, uh, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth the spring, forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in that, the thing for which I sent it. There's a lot happening in this text. This text obviously deserves a whole sermon in and of itself. But really quickly, he is telling people Gentile Jew alike, to come to him and repent so that God would show them compassion. And in verse 10 through 11, God sends out his word. And that word, he says, will return fruit. It shall happen. Let me ask you, congregation, if God says something's going to happen, will it happen? All right. This is, I think, in here this morning is a small part of this verse coming true. One of the fruits that God's word is trying to bear in our hearts and in our lives is experiencing the compassion of a loving God. So when Jesus walks up to this crowd, he is not wrestling with pride. You know, thoughts like, oh, how can I use this situation, was not creeping around in his heart. Luke 6, 43 through 45, Jesus teaches of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means like what we are at our core, our desires, our feelings, and our motivations are in our heart. So whatever we, however we act, however we think, however we talk, is actually who we are. And what that means is how we see Jesus respond to this situation where we would be very prone to pride, We see who Jesus really is. We see Jesus with compassion, love both in words and in acts because that is who Jesus is. Our God is a God of love and compassion. Our God oozes love towards people and he desires to see them and wants them to change for their betterment. So when Jesus displays his power as the chosen one, as the Messiah, as Christ, it is not done out of pride, but out of compassion. Let me just pause real quick. Let me ask you, um, if you're a father in here, maybe a mother, an older person, just anybody who's in charge, but particularly fathers, have you said in the past few months, man, I just want to be a better dad. I just want to be a more godly example, here is God's answer to that prayer. You want to be a better dad, you want to be a better mother, be compassionate. You see, when everything's really hard and you're really tired, that is where God comes and he can empower our spirit to change. Where our flesh and our culture says, all right, now it's, you, it's a me time. Jesus is trying to call us out and says, no, it's time to glorify me. It's a time to put down our phones, to turn off our TVs, and interact with those who are under our care. Sacrifice our meaningless time and just do meaningless things so that we can love, talk interact, encourage, lift up, experience life together. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus' compassion and love is not some floating, ill-defined, general love here. You know, people say all the time, oh, I love my child, oh, I love my parents, oh, I love this person, I I love the people at church, of course I love the loss. Jesus' love is not in words only. Jesus 's love is in concrete heart posture that compels him to action, and that is our next um, that is our next point Jesus' power flows out of his compassion that's the only way these uh, next three words in uh, verse thirteen makes sense you if you heard Jerry reading these next three words makes absolute no sense out of the context of Jesus and compassion and power. Look down at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. How could Jesus, in loving compassion, say such to a grieving mother? Because Jesus does not merely bring love to this situation, but he brings power through his touch and his words. Second point, through his words, we see God display his power over death. First, this is in verses 14 and 15. Look down in verse 14 with me. Then he came up and touched the bearer, and the bearer stood still. Let's put a pause on that real quick. We need to understand the situation. Okay, in the Old Testament, in Numbers 19, We are taught that when a Jewish person would touch a dead body, they would become unclean, okay? They were not allowed to go in the temple. They were not allowed to do certain things because they were ritually unclean. You see this kind of playing out later when Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure many of us in here have heard it, but real quick recap. There was a guy who was on the road beaten near to death because of robbers. And a couple of people passed by him, a priest and a Levite, and they're like, whoa, I can't touch him because I'll become unclean. And actually what they were doing is saying, I don't really care about this guy. It's more about me, not about them. So they skirted by. And then there's this guy, this good Samaritan, who, by the way, Jews hated. But this good Samaritan, you know what he came up and did? He loved him. He showed him compassion, and he took care of him. See, when Jesus saw a dead man and he reached out and touched him, that dead body did not make him unclean. Jesus' power, when he touched that dead body and spoke his words of life, that unclean dead body became clean. When Jesus touches something, when God's word infiltrates something, new life happens. Look down at verse 14 and 15 again. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus Gave him to his mother. Brothers and sisters, I, I think one of the reasons Luke, uh, by the Holy Spirit, was inspired to put this uh, story in Luke at this particular juncture is that we can remember what Jesus just said a chapter earlier in chapter 6, verse 21, when he says, Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, what is all that talking about? It's basically saying you, uh, you're going to be suffering for the kingdom. But you are blessed if you suffer, because later on, God will make you laugh. God will bring joy to you. And in this instance, in this small instance, God is giving the briefest of picture to us of what will happen when God's kingdom fully comes. When Jesus touched the dead man and he brought him back to life with his words, it's, it's like a, pit, a, prin, a pin prick in the sky. Okay. Think of a a dark sky, a dark, uh, cloudy night, okay? And one little star gets through those clouds. That is what it's like to just see a little bit of God's compassion, a little bit of God's redeeming love. But when God comes back in all of his divine glory, in his second coming, It's not going to just be a little pinprick that's in the sky. The entire sky will be ripped open, and it will be all glorious. When Jesus' power touches the widow's situation, we see her weeping turn to joyous laughter. And when Jesus' kingdom is fully consummated, look what will happen to all creation. Revelation 21, verse 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Listen, if if Jesus' mere two words in the original text and a simple touch can bring a dead man back to life, think what his entire uninterrupted reign will do to all creation. Everything will be made right. Every sin will cease Every disease will be healed, and all things will be made right. This is our God. This is what we need to see. This is what the people need to see in the text. This is the kind of Messiah that was coming. Our God, Jesus, he he makes dead men live again. He makes weeping mothers rejoice and laugh anew. He binds the brokenhearted. He restores the wayward. He sustains the weak. He adopts the orphan. He gives to those who are desperate, and he forgives those who are unforgivable. He restores those who are in shame back to his light. He gives joy to the ones who are in despair, and he shows mercy and grace to us day day. After day, after day, this is our God. And when we see God at work in our broken lives, when we see people struggling or seeing our lives were struggling, and then we see new growth, you know what that should produce in us? It should produce praise in all of God's work. And that is our last point for this morning. Jesus, the Messiah, displays his power over death through his compassion, and this then leads to a praise filled with awe for God's glory. This will be found in verse 16 through 17. And as the people saw what Jesus just did, raising the young man back to life, re- restoring him back to his mother, look at the response in verse 16. Fear seized them all, And they glorify God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Now, certainly, sometimes when you see the word fear in the Bible, it's talking about like a trembling fear, like, oh my gosh, I might be vaporized. And I think that's an appropriate part of the fear of God. But here, I think particularly when it's talking about fear, it's a trembling of amazement. Like, I can't believe, I just witnessed this. Oh, brothers and sisters, you know, there is is no better medicine for a hurting, weary soul than to regularly, daily, hourly stand in awe of God's goodness and love towards us. For God's love is an overwhelming love, an undeserving love that silences all of our doubts and binds all of our most deepest, shameful, hidden wounds. Gaze with me at him who saves us. See, for those who are in the crowd at Nahum in this little town, his disciples in both crowds, they only saw in part what was happening and you can see this from the text. It says that they see what, they saw what Jesus did, and they're like, oh, look, it's a great prophet. And was Jesus a great prophet? Yes, but he was far more than that. In verse 16, Jesus was more than just a prophet. He was the very God they were praising. They were like, God has visited us, and they didn't re- quite realize how much he, he has visited them. He's right in front of them. See, it's one thing to heal somebody without showing up. It's one thing altogether different to heal somebody by bringing them back to life. And it is a far greater thing to bring oneself back to life. See, just like the young man rose from the dead, Jesus raises from the dead at the end of Luke. See, all who put their faith in Jesus, when they look to what Jesus did on the cross by taking their place for their sins and confessing that they are sinful and need a savior and believing in his uh, sacrifice and his atonement, it says in the Bible that just as Jesus was dead in the grave, their lives will be raised anew. That, mo- that means both now and in the future. See, Jesus came to heal us of our heart problems. He didn't just come to give us a ticket out of hell. Jesus came so that we would bear fruit in our lives and bring glory to him and find enjoyment in him. And as Jesus' kingdom grows and as our lives change by seeing that Jesus rose himself from the dead and he will raise us from the dead, this should cause in us a longing, almost like I'm just satisfied I'm not happy with this earth anymore. I'm not happy uh, with this life. There's a godly ill contentment that Jesus wants us to have. There is a good contentment that we should have, but we should be not content with just merely living this life. We should be hungering and longing for the day when Jesus splits the sky and his radiant glory, his love, his justice, his mercy, and grace pours forth as his kingdom is finally here and the king has returned and all things in our lives will be made right. Do you want a taste of that now? It starts with repentance. It starts with looking at Jesus It starts with getting his word inside you and having his word change your thoughts, change your motives, change your heart. And Jesus says, I will give you a new heart. And that new heart should then be longing for the hope of the future. Listen, anxieties and fears are just based upon worrying about the future. Replace that worry about the future with a longing for God's future. Let us hope in that day. Let us see, in our text, Jesus' amazing love he had for the widow and see that, that that's just a small taste of what he has for all of his children. As we confess our pride and as our lives change that, so that the world, through us, sees God's compassion for us to them, let us then welcome others into God's fold so all together we can sing with joy as we long for Jesus' return. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your spirit is at work. God, I just ask that um, any false words would be removed and any true words would be magnified. God, we just ask that please cause change in our hearts. Help us to love one another. Help us to glorify you. And God, I just ask that you would help us daily to... Uh, experience and recognize your compassion. And that compassion then leads us to love others sacrificially. God, I put all these things in your hands, knowing that you are a good God, that loves, that has compassion, that mercy triumphs over judgment because of the cross. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: As Clark was talking about the, uh, the, the kingdom coming, and as we are, are looking forward to uh, this glimpse of life that we see on earth as, as Jesus raised this young man from the dead, it, it's, it should, as Clark said, set our hope on the future glory of Christ's return. I want to read to you guys from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we prepare For taking communion together. So this comes from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, and we'll read through verse 30. It says this: It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This body, which is for you, uh, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now listen here. For so I'm sorry, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes So what that's talking about there is just like what Clark was sharing with us today in the message. this resurrection from the dead is a glimpse of our future hope in Christ. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming His death as we anticipate His return. So when we think about the Lord's Supper, it is a twofold, maybe even three-fold process. First, it should move us to praise God for the sacrifice that He gave us in His Son, Jesus. It should be an opportunity for us to remember the price that He paid for us. And it should also be a time for us to reflect on our need for a Savior. Listen to how Paul continues in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now this this talks about the importance then of taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. So in just a minute, the praise team is going to lead us in a song, and we're going to be dismissed to go to the back of the the room. There's tables upstairs in the corners and also three down here on the floor where we can get uh, the, the wafer and the juice as well and take it back to our seats, and then we will take it together. But what we're doing when we do that as we're singing this song, it's an opportunity for us to examine our hearts, to ask ourselves, am I praising Jesus for what he's done for me? Am I aware of the sin in my life that, that sent Jesus to the cross? It's an opportunity for us to quiet our hearts and confess our sins before the Lord and to forgive him. And then thank him. Thank him for what he has done. So in, in, as the praise team leads, I'm going to pray. Our, our deacons are going to be back to uh, oversee passing that out. What I want you to do is take both the wafer and the juice back to your seat. Wait. And then after we sing this song... Uh, we'll uh, take communion together. Adam, would you lead us in singing?